president-elect has tapped Michael Regan to lead the Environmental Protection Agency. Democratic New Mexico Congresswoman Deborah Holland has caught the eye of several House Democrats. If selected and approved, she would be the first Native American cabinet secretary in U.S. history. Hi, I'm Jim Saxa, and this is The Transition, a special edition of political theater. It is Friday, December 18th. It's been another hectic week on the Hill. I've been busy following a fight over the incoming administration's ability to set up some lending programs that now threatens to derail a desperately needed COVID-19 relief package. You'll hear all about that in just a second. But first, let's talk about President-elect Joe Biden and his picks to run two major agencies. Biden announced a bunch of nominees this week, calling them his climate team. And our very own energy and environment team, Ben Hulak and Joseph Morton, have been all over it, especially Biden's pick to run the EPA and the Department of the Interior. Ben, Joseph, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jim. Thanks. Joseph, let's start with you. Biden picked Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico for Interior. She'll be the first Native American in that role. Why does that matter? Well, yeah, I, I think it matters on a couple levels. They were really uh, touting both the symbolism of the pick. I mean, having this first um, Secretary of the Interior uh, who is uh, a Native American with all the sort of fraught history that goes into both that department specifically and sort of generally the federal government and, and the tribes um, to have one of their own sitting in the seat where the decisions are being made at the highest level carries a, a lot of, of symbolism. And, and that's just seen as a real message of inclusion uh, to those communities, particularly after uh, they delivered some key votes in states like Arizona uh, for the Biden-Harris ticket. I think they see this as, as a real recognition of the role that they played and, and potentially a, um, a change in direction uh, at the department, the relationship between the department and the tribes um, with this uh, nominee. So that's kind of on the symbolism side, more on the kind of practical policy implications. Um, I, I think, especially in contrast to the last four years, uh, they're anticipating a big shift um, in areas like um, the way that they approach um, guarding uh, public uh, lands, tribal lands uh, from uh, oil and gas development, uh, protecting uh, sacred cultural sites uh, for the tribes. All of that could go a different direction uh, with the, the congresswoman um, in in charge there. Um, so I think those are are some of the things that uh, we'll see. And it's it's worth noting that you know her prospects for being the nominee had kind of faded there, particularly because Democratic leaders were concerned about the razor thin majority they've got in the House and and were pushing the Biden uh, transition folks to stop picking Democrats out of the House because they, they need them to uh, vote for vote for speaker and vote for their policy agenda there in the House. Uh, and it'll take some time to fill them, even if they're coming from safe seats. And so she had kind of faded. But then uh, as uh, Congressman Grijalva uh, told us, Indian, this is a direct quote, Indian country uh, united behind her nomination. And, and that had a, a significant impact is what he, he told us yesterday. Um, so I think that's that's a lot of what's really surrounding what is a, a historic nom nomination there at, at uh, the Interior Department. Yeah, uh, it'll be exciting to see what what happens under her uh, control if, of course, she gets nominated. So let's talk about that next. Uh, ben, how did the Senate react to this nomination and you know the other nomination, uh, Michael Reagan to the EPA? 
Yeah, Michael, I would, I would, I struggled with the pronunciation as well, Jim. It's actually Michael Regan, as I understand it. Um, and he'll actually, I think he'll be in the Reagan, I think there's a Reagan building in the EPA complex there in DC. But anyway, the Senate, um, these are folks who aren't widely known in Washington. I mean, Deb Holland has only, she's a freshman member, essentially. She just won re-election last month. But beyond that, she was, she was not known in Washington. And um, at EPA, Michael Regan is a career staffer. He worked in both the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations at EPA as an air specialist, as someone studying air pollution. But uh, he then decamped to um, uh, North Carolina, where he was the head of the equivalent of the EPA for, for that state, and won some plaudits there in turning around an agency that had seen budget cuts from the North Carolina governor um, uh, before Roy Cooper, who's who's the current governor. The previous years before Cooper had been sort of rough for the agency there. And folks in North Carolina told me that he really turned it around. Um, someone likened it in, in a piece I wrote yesterday to pulling an ox out of a ditch and getting it back on the road, getting, getting the cart that the ox was pulling back on the road. Um, the Senate is, it's sort of, I think it's um, unforeseen territory at this point. Folks don't, the Senate really doesn't know these these members all that well, these these officials all that well, rather. And your guess is really as good as mine. Um, sort of an oddity in Washington that someone doesn't have a big track record, but that's the case here. Yeah, so sticking with you, let's assume the Senate does uh, confirm them. Mm-hmm. What uh, what are they going to prioritize, prioritize first at Interior and the EPA? And how big of a shift will it be compared to the Trump era? I think it'll be absolutely uh, cataclysmic, massive. Uh, I don't really know a, a more grandiose term that you could come up with. It's going to be 180 degrees just right around. The EPA and Interior under Trump have been led by folks who... A lot of outsiders view, a lot of uh, people who've studied these agencies over the years would say are opposed to the broad missions of those agencies. Um, At EPA, Scott Pruitt, Trump's first EPA administrator, followed by Andrew Wheeler, they were a close ties to oil and gas, to the coal industry, and broadly rolled back environmental regulations. That's going to be likely a wholesale shift under um, Mr. Regan. And then at Interior, it was a similar story with Ryan Zinke, uh, Trump's first Interior Secretary, followed by David Bernhardt. Both sort of similar story um, when compared to EPA, both close to industry, both have broadly favored steps that make it easier to mine coal, easier to mine uh, hard rock minerals, easier to drill in in Alaska, for example, in the Anwar region. So and. and Congresswoman Holland has has very different views than that. Um, it'll be a wholesale shift. We're talking about changes to likely grazing fees on federal lands, drilling in uh, the Gulf of Mexico, drilling on the Atlantic coast, um, pesticides under the Endangered Species Act, or um, pesticides rather, uh, and their effect on endangered species. It's You can't frame this as a more diametrically opposed shift. It's going to be massive. So besides besides completely transforming 
the two agencies after four years under uh, Trump appointees. Joseph, what are going to be some of the biggest challenges that this team is going to face? Sure. I mean, well, and we kind of have to mention off the top, the most obvious challenge is going to be Mitch McConnell and Republicans on the Hill. Uh, best case scenario. Assuming, assuming the Republicans hold the Senate, which is probably likely, but who knows? Right. Well, I was going to say, I mean, best case scenario for Democrats is that they have uh, a majority in the House that you could count on on one hand. And uh, in the Senate, uh, best case scenario, you're going to have a 50-50 uh, with uh, Vice President Harris breaking ties uh, and a 50-50 Senate with the Democratic caucus that includes Joe Manchin, who is not exactly you know, so a, a big proponent of the Green New Deal, if you will. Um, so you're, you're, you're going to have all, all of that GOP resistance uh, up on the Hill to any major sweeping, uh, you know, the kind of bold action that the Biden-Harris administration is promising on climate change and that they're saying is needed, that the advocates say is needed. Um, so that's kind of the, the first point. Um, but then even beyond that, so you kind of turn your attention to the agencies and what they'll be doing there. Uh, but while the planetary clock is ticking, if you will, on climate change, uh, the federal rulemaking process has its own pace uh, that doesn't always lend itself to a lot of, of speed. So they're going to have to come in and kind of, first, they have to undo some of the things the previous administration uh, did. Um, you know, some advocates are saying, yeah, step one is to kind of fix all the damage and then start their own affirmative agenda, um, putting it, putting that into place. And yeah, these rules take time. Uh, they're going to have to lay the foundation for things. It's not just flipping the switch uh, when it comes to, you know, at Interior, talking about rolling back, uh, you know, the ability to have oil and gas development on public lands. Um, they're going to have to uh, work to uh, get the administrative law case in place because uh, the groups that are going to oppose those, the uh, corporate interests and, um, and groups resisting those moves are going to absolutely, you know, guaranteed take, take the administration to court over some of those moves. Uh, so there's gonna be all of that um, in front of them. Uh, another big area of, or another potential uh, obstacle they're gonna need to navigate is the fact that as they launch into tackling these issues, they're gonna have to keep in mind any potential impact on the economy, which obviously has been um, ravaged by the pandemic and the recovery is gonna be fragile in the spring. Uh, they're gonna be have to be very mindful of not trying to disrupt that. They've also promised that whatever they do on, on tackling climate change in the environmental space, that they're going to try to respect um, environmental justice. And so they're going to have to give consideration to whatever the impact on um, disadvantaged uh, uh, communities, on minority communities will be. They already kind of got a lesson in this when they were talking about putting uh, California's Mary Nichols in as head of the EPA. And the progressive groups really rose up and said that they didn't like her record uh, in California in terms of uh, pursuing a cap and trade approach that they said basically allowed corporations to kind of buy their way out of uh, oversight and accountability and just continue polluting in areas uh, where you had uh, minority communities or disadvantaged communities living near industrial centers. Uh, so those are a few of the things that they're going to have to confront. Yeah, I, I, to, to quickly add on to what, what Joseph is saying, I think the Nichols example is really striking. I mean, Mary Nichols is synonymous with environmental protection in California, especially, but, but I won't, I won't say global, not, not globally necessarily, but across the country, she is, she has been fighting these battles to limit air pollution for decades. She is 
sort of an icon in this space. And yet the power of the left wing and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party essentially blocked her. Um, it's it's striking. That's It is groups like the Sunrise Movement, 350.org, um, that, that, that made environmental justice an absolute litmus test for a lot of these candidates. And at EPA, Michael Regan also comes from an interesting background, and he won some praise in North Carolina for what he did on environmental justice issues. But it does seem that that's a clarion call within the Democratic Party, uh, that environmental justice issues are sort of a make or break deal. They, they must be part of your track record if you have a shot at getting, um, getting these key positions. They're going to face high demands from the left. They're going to face obstinacy from the right. And uh, a whole slew of lawsuits from every organization that they're going to try to regulate. Sounds easy. I do not, uh, I do not, I'm not jealous of them. Um, guys, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Appreciate it. While Biden's been getting his team in place, Congress has been scrambling to finish its to-do list for 2020. But there's been a last-minute snag in the negotiations for another round of COVID relief. After months of deadlock, Democrats and Republicans seem to finally be on the same page around a $900 billion package that would have been attached to the annual spending bill. The finish line was in sight. All that was left was a few tweaks here and there. But then Pennsylvania Republican Pat Toomey threw a monkey wrench into the rusty motor works that is the Senate. Toomey wants language added to the bill that would prevent President-elect Joe Biden's administration from working with the Federal Reserve to relaunch a few emergency lending facilities that are set to expire at the end of the year. Back when the pandemic started, financial markets started to freak out. So along with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, the Fed set up a bunch of special lending programs to prevent a total meltdown. And then Congress gave Mnuchin $500 billion to support and expand those programs. Just having the facilities around was enough to calm the markets, so most of the money went unused. Then in November, Mnuchin said he'd shut most of them down. Democrats called foul, but Mnuchin said he was simply following the law. This is perfectly clear. Uh, the Senate provided unprecedented authority to the Secretary of the Treasury in giving me $500 billion. The statute was very clear. Matter of fact, I find it implausible that any member of this committee believe that in voting for the CARES Act, you were authorizing me to invest $500 billion to make loans in perpetuity. But Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat of Ohio, said the law didn't require that at all and accused Republicans of trying to salt the earth after the election. Either you're purposely trying to stop President-elect Biden and Treasury's uh, Secretary-designee Yellen from getting to work for the people we all serve, or you're delusional. And for what it's worth, the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service agrees with Democrats. While the programs will end and the $500 billion will be taken away, Yellen and the Fed could restart them with the $20 billion or so dollars the Treasury has lying around in its exchange stabilization fund. And they could make the terms really favorable for struggling businesses and states facing big budget gaps. But that's where Toomey's gear-wrenching proposal comes in. Toomey wants to make sure that can't happen. 
He thinks cheap financing from the Fed looks too much like fiscal policy. It is not the role of a central bank. It is not the role of our central bank, the Fed, to engage in fiscal policy, social policy, or allocating credit. And if we went down that road, as my Democratic colleagues seem to want to, we would be politicizing the Fed and we would destroy Fed independence. That, of course, has made Democrats even more upset. Bharat Ramamurti is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute who sits along to me on the oversight committee Congress set up for these facilities. He says Toomey's proposal goes way beyond just the current crisis. That would not just limit the ability of the Biden administration to continue to address the current economic crisis, but really tie the Fed's hands when it comes to their ability to address future financial crises. And I just think it's a radical thing to push for inclusion into a package like this with no hearings, no vetting, no debate, and I think it would be dangerous to adopt it. Now, even if Young could get the Fed to go along with the plan to relaunch the lending programs and make them really cheap, they'd still be relatively small. And to do that, Yellen would have to get five of the Fed's six current governors to agree. And five of them were appointed by President Donald Trump. Despite those long odds, Toomey says the language is a deal-breaker for him. This is the most important thing to me. If a deal can't be made, then pandemic-related unemployment benefits will run out for 14 million out-of-work Americans the day after Christmas. And then on New Year's Day, an eviction moratorium will end and put 17 million at risk of homelessness in the winter during a pandemic. And that does it for this week of The Transition. I'm Jim Saxa. For all of us at CQ Roll Call, thanks for listening. Thank you.